This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right. This is the hour you've all been waiting for, I guess. That's what I've been sensing with the questions I've been getting. What do you think about cryptocurrencies? What about Bitcoin? I've already been asked like five times today. So (laughs) if you listen carefully, by the end of this seminar, you'll have a pretty good idea where I stand on that. Session number three, increasing the talents, investing for the future. Where is this concept, increasing the talents, where is it found in scripture? The parable of the talents. We're going to take a look at that in a moment. So for those of you who aren't familiar, savingthecrumbs.com is the website where my wife and I write about personal finance. And also, Audioverse, two years ago, GYC 2015, I did a seminar whoops, on, uh, called Beyond the Tithe on personal finance. You can also go there for further information. There are a lot of things covered there that I'm not covering here. Uh, and in particular, back then, Bitcoin wasn't quite as big of a craze as it was it is now. Um, but you probably wish you got some back then, at least those of you who are paying attention to the markets. Anyway, investing. So let's start with the foundation. We need to start from scripture and derive our principles by which we evaluate or why invest, how to invest, how do we approach this? So what does the Bible have to tell us? So we already looked, we already mentioned the parable of the talents. And this is what Jesus says, or the master said to the servants, Matthew 25, 27. You ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. It's very direct. You should have invested my money. There it is. So should we invest based on the Bible? I believe so. And you remember the story. There were three servants. One had five talents. One had two. One had one. What was the rate of return? Okay, this is a tricky question. For the one with five, he doubled his money. What's the rate of return? What's the percent? 100% return. What about the one with two? So in a sense, did they have the same performance? Yeah, of course. They They doubled their money. What happened to the guy with the one? Or what did he do, rather? He buried it in the ground. He didn't lose the talent. Keep that in mind. He didn't lose the capital. He just didn't grow it. So he says, you should have invested my money. And, you know, when we talk about the parable of the talents, it's frequently we take that parable and we immediately spiritualize it. Everything under the sun is a talent except money. It's like you have your speech, you can sing, you're artistic, you're good at math, whatever their talent might be, you should increase it for God. But money? Oh, no, that's evil, right? That's greed. You shouldn't invest your money. Well, the very symbol or the, uh, the, the illustration that's used, money, it is a talent. And to make that abundantly clear, let's see what Ellen White has to say. Councils on Stewardship, page 113, paragraph 1. The followers of Christ are not to despise wealth. They are to look upon wealth as the Lord's entrusted talent. There it is. By a wise use of his gifts, they may be eternally benefited, but we are to bear the fact in mind that God has not given us riches to use just as we shall fancy, to indulge impulse, to bestow or withhold as we shall please. So the important point here is that, yeah, we should increase the talents, but not for our own personal gain or glory, but for the uh, the purposes of God. All right. A couple other principles, and then we're going to tie it together. Christ's Object Lessons, page 352, paragraph 1 says, Hoarded wealth is not merely useless, it is a curse. In this life, it is a snare to the soul, drawing the affections away from the heavenly treasure, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's a biblical principle. And so we're, we're, we're told here that we should not hoard our wealth. That's a curse. But yet, we just read... We should invest, but don't hoard. So you see, there's a balance here where we should be growing the resources God has given to us, but don't hoard it. We're not, the goal is not to be filthy rich. What is the goal? 
Use it for the gospel, yeah. Okay, let's take a look at this statement also. Councils on Stewardship, page 250, paragraph 1. Had you and your wife understood it to be a duty that God has enjoined upon you to deny your tastes and your desires and make provision for the future, instead of living merely for the present, you could now have had a competency and your family have had the comforts of life. So why do we invest? It's to make provision for the future. The purpose is to save up, invest, so that in the future when we generally speaking, is when in a time when we don't have as much earning capacity, our family will not suffer lack. They can stop the comforts and the conveniences of life. So to provide for the future, that's why we do it. To meet our needs, not to have an ever-growing cash pile. You remember the story of the rich fool in the Bible? He said, oh, I had a great harvest. Let's build, we filled up our barns, let's build a bigger barn. Let's fill that one. And then, soul, take thy ease, eat, drink, be merry. And God says, you fool. Tonight your soul be required of thee. What shall a man gain if he shall gain the whole world but lose his soul? Right? So that's the principle here. But yet, providing for the needs of the future. Go to the ant thou sluggard, right? Preparing for the winter when summer's around. Testimonies for the Church, volume 5, page 156, paragraph 1. Brethren, awake from your life of selfishness and act like consistent Christians. The Lord requires you to economize your means and let every dollar not needed for your comfort flow into the treasury. So this answers the question, what about the surplus? So let's say I'm investing and I have more than I need. What should we do with the rest? Very clearly, let it flow into God's treasury. So you see how this works. God does not say, give me all your money first. God says, take care of your needs first. And then the surplus, let it flow into the treasury. Is that clear? So let's summarize what we've said so far. So the foundation biblical principles of uh, the foundational biblical principles for investing. Number 1, we as servants of God, managers of his means, stewards, whatever term you want to use, we are responsible to increase our talents, which includes money. All of our talents. That's what the parable of the talents was telling us. As stewards, literally servants, we are to increase the master's talents. The money and money is one of those talents. But what's the objective? Number one, or the objective, there are two here, or, yeah, sort of two objectives. One is to make provision for the future, future needs, to simply have enough, not to hoard or to get filthy rich. And then, secondly, to have a surplus so it can flow into God's treasury. Money to go advance the work of God. That's it. So investing. Should we invest? Yes. Why do we invest? To meet our needs and to have a surplus to return to God. Is it to become filthy rich? No. Is it to have the richest, to be the richest man in the graveyard? No. Is that clear? All right. So let's get practical. Investment principles. So I hate, I hate to break it to you, but there are no perfect investments on this planet. Everyone always wants, hey, is there a safe investment that I can put my money that will give me a large return with no risk? Doesn't exist. There's actually one, uh, and that's called investing in the bank of heaven. If you read the Spirit of Prophecy, she makes it clear. You can send your treasures up ahead, and it accrues interest up there, and when you get there, you get it all back plus interest. And you have no, uh, no loss of principle, of course. Um, that's assuming you're, you're there, right? So... But here on this earth, since we don't have any perfect investments, the best we can do is to come up with a, a way of evaluating our options and to do the best we can. So there will not be a perfect investment. I just have to say that up front. You're just going to have to accept uh, that there's going to be some trade-offs and we're going to have to make a judgment call based on what options are available. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go through a list of 10 principles of investing. And usually when I give this seminar, I sprinkle it with examples from all different types of investments, and I'll still do a little bit of that. But since everyone is on this Bitcoin craze, I'm going to be injecting Bitcoin uh, specifically as a lot of the examples so you're going to have to pay attention because I'm not going to sit here and actually do a whole lecture on Bitcoin. I'm going, to, I'm going to be sharing with you investment principles, sprinkling throughout a little bit of how Bitcoin interacts with these principles. And by the end of this thing, you should be able to take a look at the principles and evaluate it for yourself 
and decide is it good or bad. So you're going to have to think. Is that okay? Are you awake? Yeah, about five of you are awake. If I said I'm going to show you how to make a million dollars with Bitcoin, I think everyone's going to be awake. But anyway, we're not going to do that. We're going to share some principles. So principle number one for investing. Number one, never invest in something you don't understand. I cannot underscore this enough. If you don't pass this first criteria, the rest of them don't matter. I derived this principle from here in Proverbs chapter 24, verses 3 and 4. Through wisdom is a house builded, and by understanding it is established. And by knowledge shall the chambers be filled with all precious and pleasant riches. The biblical principle is we do not get rich, we do not build wealth through ignorance or through wishful thinking. We need to be intelligent to exercise wisdom, understanding, to, you know, discover knowledge in how we are gaining the wealth that God has placed into our care. So, what do I mean never invest in something you don't understand? How, what do I have to understand? Okay, a couple points. Number one, how does this investment make money? If you can't explain that point, you don't understand what this investment is about. Number two, how can it lose money? This is the one nobody wants to talk about. Everyone who talks about investments, they always talk about, oh yeah, this thing can get 100% return or 1,000% return. Nobody ever talks about when people crash and burn and lose everything. Number three, what are the costs involved? And number four, what are the rules and regulations? So in any investment, you have to be able to answer these four questions at minimum in order for you to say, I understand. So let's say Bitcoin as an example. How does Bitcoin make money? Can you explain that? How does it lose money? Everybody seems to think that, you know, cryptocurrencies is so secure. Well, the blockchain technology, yeah, it is secure, but the exchanges are not. And do you realize that, as I know some of you might not even know what Bitcoin is, which, by the way, means you don't understand, so don't invest in it, um, <laughs> if you don't know what it is. But... Your wallet, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency wallet, you have a, what's called a private key. And if you forget the private key, you lose your money forever. It can't be retrieved. So if you misspell it by one character, it's gone forever. And actually, there are millions and millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin sitting in people's digital wallets that can never, ever, ever be retrieved because they lost the password. Have you ever forgotten a password? Yeah. Well, guess what? You know how to lose Bitcoin. <laughs> Not only that, there are costs involved. So what are the costs involved in Bitcoin? People don't really understand this, but there are transaction costs to using the Bitcoin network. And right now, if you want to transfer, let's say, a dollar of Bitcoin, you know how much the transaction fees cost? $30 to $40. Not exactly cheap in my book. And then what are the rules and regulations? This is a hot topic. Just this morning, the news said that South Korea is cranking down on Bitcoin exchanges in their country. China has outlawed it. There are all sorts of things. The IRS is always looking at how to tax it. There are no regulations really in this space. So that means, in one sense, yeah, there's a lot of money to be made by the enterprising individuals. But on the other hand, you're on your own. If you get caught doing something unsavory, well, you're on your own. So do you understand these things? And you can apply this to any type of investment, a mutual fund, bonds, real estate, what have you. How does it make money? How can it lose money? Meaning what's the risk involved? We'll talk more about risk in a minute. What are the costs of doing business? What are the taxes involved? What are the rules and regulations? Do you understand? And one more thing about Bitcoin. If you don't understand what a blockchain is, you do not understand Bitcoin. And if you don't know who Satoshi Nakamoto is, you do not understand Bitcoin. And for those of you who totally didn't get that, that was supposed to be a joke. But if you did not get the joke, you don't understand Bitcoin. All right, so same point, second, you know, different ways around it. So everyone, just don't pull out your phone. Don't look up Satoshi Nakamoto. Wait until later. Let's keep going. So do you understand? So some rules of thumb. If something is too good to be true, it probably is. A story not related to Bitcoin, but uh, surprisingly similar. 
a couple of months ago, I had some friends from Asia contact me asking me some investment advice about this particular gold investment, as they called it, um, that they were interested in. They had some friends who were going in, and they said, this thing is so secure, they're getting something like 60% rate of return annually, it's like 5 to 8% every month, and my friends already got all their principal back. So they're saying, hey, you want to you jump in? And I thought, oh, that's interesting, gold, huh? And then they went on and said, oh, and there's a referral bonus where if I recommend people and I have a downline, all of a sudden I get bonuses for every person that gets signed up under me. And you can get as much as, I actually saw it on this, uh, this company's website, you can get as much as $10 million a year or something in bonuses. And I'm like, if that doesn't smell fishy to you, um, something's wrong with your nose. But I did a little bit of research and they were talking about it being a gold investment. In fact, in the end, it was not a gold investment. It's what they call spot gold trading, which is a type of foreign exchange, or forex, where they're trading currencies, and one of the currency in the pair that they were trading happened to be the price of gold. So you're not buying gold, you're not investing in gold, you're speculating on the price of gold and another currency. But then, as I dug a little deeper, as it turns out, that's actually not the kind of business they were in at all. They were what's called a pyramid scheme where they were trying to get people to come in at the bottom of the pyramid so they can pay out the people at the top. Also called a Ponzi scheme. And, you know, just a rule of thumb. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. Let me just give you some, uh, uh, something that you can hang your hat on. Warren Buffett is considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest, investor in human history. And how did he get that incredible reputation? He's been investing for about five decades and he has an annualized annual rate of return of only, and I say this in quotes, only 19 or 20%. And he is like, in the investment world, he's like a god. You understand? Warren Buffett, everybody knows him. And so this company is like, we can guarantee you triple Warren Buffett's annual rate of return. Now, you tell me, is that, is that likely to be the case? Does that sound too good to be true? Yes. And so I wrote a blog post about this thing, and I posted it, and then the next day the website went dark. <laughs> so their website, not mine. And so they, <laughs> and as it turns out, my friends tried to get their money out, and they're like, well, you're, you, can, you have to wait six months. You have to wait nine months. Oh, you can only get 70% back. And it's like, mm, you can kiss that money goodbye. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. Just a reminder, you remember Bernie Madoff? What an ironic name, right? Bernie, who made off with everyone's money. Largest Ponzi scheme ever in history. And you know what rate of return he was promising people? 10 to 15%. That's it. And it was the largest Ponzi scheme in history. And that does not sound too good to be true. That sounded fairly reasonable, and that's probably why he got away with it for so long. Second rule of thumb about understanding. Simplicity trumps complexity. Something that is simpler is going to be better than something that's complex. It may not mean that the simpler option has a higher rate of return. That may not be the case. But it, might, it, it more likely means you're not going to get caught up in some scheme that you don't understand. You're going to make a mistake and do something that you don't understand. And I'm going to inject a little bit of Bitcoin in here too. Is that Bitcoin is not that simple. If you can fully understand it and explain it in elevator pitch in 30 seconds, then you're, you're doing pretty good. But in general terms, and I've actually looked into this, just buying Bitcoin, trading it in and out of your account and transaction fees and being able to manage the blockchain and all that, it's not that simple for the general population. If you don't understand, walk away. But my friends made like a million dollars in Bitcoin. Do you understand? If you do not understand, who cares if your friends made a million dollars? Walk away. It's not worth it. Never invest in something you don't understand. Because guess what? Your friend is never going to tell you when they lose their house. You just don't hear those stories. All right? Trying to keep you safe here, guys. Number two, be mindful of costs and taxes. Okay, this is actually part of number one, but it's so important I split this out. The rule of thumb is, and this is according to most research on investments, 
All things being equal, an investment with lower cost predicts higher returns. Lower cost investments beat higher cost investments as a general rule. So you want to look for something that is cheap, <laughs> cheap in a good sense. Compounding costs, meaning annual expenses and taxes, will e uh, negate compound interest and higher returns. And you want to be aware of high broker fees, commissions, hidden transaction costs. They all come out, come out of your returns. And that's the same, you know, we, we have to remember that when it comes to cryptocurrencies, particularly Bitcoin. Transaction costs are hidden frequently and they are very massive right now. And you want to use tax sheltered accounts to help shelter you from tax ramifications. So here are a few of the more common uh, tax sheltered accounts under retirement. There's a 401k or the 403b. Those are employer retirement accounts. Uh, usually there's a match involved. There's an IRA and the Roth IRA. These are for individuals. Uh, they're all tax sheltered, either pre-tax or post-tax. There's college savings, the 529 or the education savings account. And then there's health savings account, which I talked about in the previous seminar session. I'm not going to bore you with taxable and uh, non-taxable accounts, except to say, if you have the option of getting a match on your money with your 401k or 403b, take the match. There is no such thing as a risk-free investment, but the match is about the closest thing there is. Because let's say you, your, your employer matches you 5% dollar for dollar for the first 5% of your income that goes into the 401k. You put your 5% in, and they instantly match you 5%. What rate of return did you just get? 100% people. You put in 5% of your money, let's say it's $500, they match you dollar for dollar, you just got another $500. If you don't take the match, I will slap you. <laughs> okay. So take the match, it's about the only thing in this world that you can call free money. All right, number three, this is a good one. We gotta beat inflation, okay? Beat inflation. Back to the story of the talents. The wicked servant didn't lose the talent. He simply failed to grow it. You remember this in the story. He actually was excellent in preserving the capital. He didn't lose it. He buried it. He didn't just bury it. He wrapped it in a napkin. He was very good at protecting the master's capital. But, hmm, was he blessed or was he condemned? Inflation erodes purchasing power. You all know how inflation works. $10 today buys a lot less than $10 20 years ago. And so to not beat inflation means that the, the value of the money that we are holding is going down. The purchasing power is going down. So to not beat inflation is worse than bearing our talent. We're losing the master's money. So what should we do about it? So what rate of return did these servants get on their capital? The faithful servants, they doubled their talents, which is a 100% total return. So they doubled their money 100%. The question is, how long did it take for them to accomplish this? We're not told exactly, but the Bible does say in the parable that the master returned after a long time. So this is helpful because we are not told that they doubled their money overnight. It took a long time. So, I want to figure out, to the best of my ability, what was their annual rate of return in order to double their money. And I want to know how to, uh, what was their annual rate of return to double their money with an approximate 3% annual inflation rate. Why do I pick 3%? Because that's been the average uh, inflation here in the United States for about the past 100 years. So based on historical data, annual inflation, approximately 3%. What do they have to earn on their money year after year in order to double their money? Well, I made a little chart. So on this, uh, this column here, we took a look at the years. 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. We're not told how long, so I just picked three numbers. But you'll see the trend. So how what's the rate of return that they would need to double their money with inflation calculated in 10 years? Approximately 10%. 10% rate of return. What about 15 years? Approximately 8%. 20 years, about 6.5%. And you see the trend. The longer it goes, if it's 25 years, it'll go down probably about 5.5%. 30 years, it'll be even less than that. 
So you might be looking at these numbers, and some of you might be thinking, wow, that's a lot, because my bank gives me maybe half a percent, 0.4%, something like that. That's a lot. Maybe that's what you're thinking. But then other people might be thinking, wow, that's not much at all, because Bitcoin just this year went up 1,500%. Well, let me give you some context. An S&P 500 index fund, which is a low-cost, broadly diversified mutual fund that tracks the S&P 500 index. It's available in most people's 401ks. It's available in almost all IRAs. It's a very common and uh, commonly available investment type. Over the past 40 years, guess what the rate of return was? Somewhere right between 10, 8 and 10%. So 8 and 10% is, not with, is, is something that is fairly reasonably within the reach of most normal human beings, is what I'm saying. But this only works over the long term. None of these investments guarantee 8 to 10% in any given year, but averaged out over a long period of time, which is what we're talking about, the master was gone for a long time, that kind of investment return, 8 to 10% is still considered relatively reasonable. We do not need to be chasing 100,000, 50,000 percent rates of return, which is what really is going on in the cryptocurrency craze right now. Point number four. So the previous point, we need to beat inflation. Okay, we have to beat inflation, and how, by how much? Well, it depends how long right, you're looking at. Anywhere from 6, 8, 10 percent, somewhere in there. Number four, diversify. Ecclesiastes 11 verse 2 tells us, give, <coughs> give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may come on the earth. We use this verse when we talk about insurance, but it also applies to investing because there's also investment risk. We want to diversify investments, and how do we do that? We split it up by diversifying it. Or put it in another words, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Common sense, but how does it actually work? So if you are an employee in a business and you get stock options in that business, and that's your only investment, guess what? You are not diversified because you are, all your eggs is in the one basket of that one company. If you lose your job and the camp company goes bankrupt, guess what? You're done. So what do you want to do? You want to take your investment and spread it out. You might have some in that company. Maybe you have some bonds. You have some in cash. Maybe you have real estate, land. Diversify between different uh, areas. But even then, for Adventists, real estate is one of the most popular Adventist investments. Suppose you had um, investment property, beautiful beachfront property. Let's say you have five of them. Wow. But they're all on the island of Puerto Rico. Hmm. You're not terribly well diversified right at the moment, are you? So even within the context of real estate, yes, multiple properties, yeah, that's good. But if you're all, all of them are on the San Andreas fault line, you might have some problems. So you're going to want to think geographically, different asset types, and uh, uh, more than one um, location and different uh, places. So there are a lot of different types of investments that build that in for you. Mutual funds is a common one. Index funds, as I talked about earlier. Uh, but the principle here is don't put all your eggs in one basket. We're going to talk a little bit more about diversification as we talk about the fifth point here. The fifth principle is know your risk tolerance. How do you feel when you see this picture? Some people look at a roller coaster like this and they feel exhilaration like, yeah, let's go. Other people are like, don't get me anywhere near that. Like, I'm getting dizzy just looking at the picture. Well, what about this roller coaster? Right? There's different levels of feelings, right? Some people look at a real roller coaster and they feel exuberance. Others feel fear. Some people look at this kind of roller coaster and people think, oh no, my portfolio is going down. Other people are thinking, yes, everything is going on sale. How would you feel, right? That's your feeling here is indicative of something called your internal risk meter. All of us have something inside of us that tells us, oh, I'm not comfortable with that. It's a meter that measures 
our risk tolerance. And so we need to understand that risk meter and tune it. And it, it has to coincide with our investment choices because there's always risk involved in investments. So how do we tune this risk meter? We gotta understand four things. Number one, our investment time horizon. This is probably the most important. The longer time you have, the more risk you can take on. Why is that? Because the longer time you have, if your investments go down in value, you have more time to pick it back up. And you have more time to buy more, right, when your investments are lower. So in general, that means older people can take on less risk than younger people generally speaking. But it really has to deal with what the money is intended for. Generally, we, when we say that, we're talking about retirement. But let's say you have a child and they're ready, getting ready to go to college in five, six years. Well, your investment time horizon is a lot shorter than a 25, 30-year retirement down the road. So for the money that you need sooner, you can't take as much risk on it. Number two, What's your level of knowledge? Again, this goes right back to never invest in something you don't understand. But the more knowledge you have in a particular area, the lower the risk is for you. So let's say you're a real estate developer. You can invest and take more risk in real estate investments than someone who has no idea how to swing a hammer, no idea what real estate is all about. So your personal knowledge is critical to understand. And so some people, you know, maybe they know a little bit more about cryptocurrencies than others. Certainly there are people like that, and perhaps they can mitigate the risk because of their personal knowledge. Number three, do you have other assets or other income streams? This is a factor of diversification. If you've got Social Security coming in and you're able to live pretty comfortably on Social Security, guess what? You can take a little bit more risk with your other investments. Or if you have other assets, side income, uh, other types of things that can support you in the event that this one investment that you're focusing on tanks, you're not going to be completely up a creek without a paddle. So you want to really understand if I am entirely dependent on this investment portfolio for my livelihood, you cannot take as much risk on it. And then number four, personal risk appetite or aversion. So this is a personality factor. Some people would love to jump out of an airplane uh, with a parachute, uh, but other people don't really even want to get in an airplane. Now, for many of us, particularly for those of us who are married, God has sort of built this into the marriage relationship where there are checks and balances, right? Husband and wife, many times there are different levels of risk tolerance. And you have to understand what those tolerances are within your relationship, or you might run into some conflict. The husband might be like, yeah, let's go all in. I'm going to mortgage the house. I'm going to sell the boat. I'm going to sell the kids to go all in on this investment. And the wife is like, now, now, honey, sit down. No. <laughs> so you're going to have to discuss between you, and generally speaking, that's how you keep the family firm afloat. You have some risk aversion with someone who's a little bit more risky, working together in tandem. That's a whole marriage seminar. I think someone else probably is doing that seminar. You'll go there to figure that out. But all I'm saying here is you need to listen to one another and have a family agreement on the amount of risk that makes people comfortable. So you've you got to understand your risk tolerance. So risk and returns. We have to understand that all investments have risk. All of them. And so the rule of thumb is that it is also proportional. So the higher the returns, the higher the risk. You just have to remember that. Something that returns 1%, like a savings account, relatively safe, right? Very safe. Whereas Bitcoin, on the other hand, 1,500%, um, you can also proportionally dial up the risk proportionally to that rate of return. Now, even more significant, I have to mention this, is that debt magnifies <coughs> the risk even more. A lot of people, they trade or they invest using what's called margin or leverage. And I'm hearing news reports of people mortgaging their homes and putting it all into Bitcoin. Guess what? That's a recipe to be living out on the street. Because debt magnifies the risk. Because not only will you lose that investment, you have to pay back the money that you owe with interest. Guess what? Uh, not smart. Not smart. So diversifying your risk. Let me just give you another example. So <clears throat> short-term and long-term risk. Okay, let me just give you this example of something real practical you can do right now. 
Savings accounts, U.S. Treasury bonds, money market funds, these are what we consider, generally speaking, low risk. They're low interest, but low risk. They're FDIC insured, some of them, uh, or the bonds, they're backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. So in the short term, something less than five years, those investments are very safe. They're not going to go down in value. They're not going anywhere. However, in the long term, more than five years, they're very high risk in the sense that it's going to lag the rate of inflation. We talked about inflation just a moment ago, and we have to remember, if we keep all of our money in our savings account in 10 years, that money is not going to be keeping up with the rate of inflation. And that's called burying our talent in the ground. So what are we going to do? So we see here in the long term, or in the short term, things like the stock market, real estate, land, and there are other types of investments that could go here. They're very high risk in the short term. They can go up, they can go down. They can lose a lot of value overnight. But in the long term, historically speaking, the stock market, real estate, land, they beat inflation and they're considered low risk for the long term. So what do we do? <coughs> we want to diversify our risk. So any money that we need within the short term, put it into these low risk accounts, insured accounts, bonds, money market, and the long term money that we don't need five years or lo longer in the future, those are the things that we can invest in higher risk and higher return type investments. So the rule of thumb is to save for the short term, five years or less, and invest for the long term, things that are over five years. All right. So that um, is a little bit of diversification. Now, number six, don't try to get rich quick, don't be greedy, and don't speculate. All right. The Bible says, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it, Proverbs 13, 11. Proverbs 28, 20 says, a faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. So I need to tell you the story of tulip mania. If you come back with me in history to the 1600s, uh, Netherlands, Holland, there was a craze over tulips. These beautiful flowers, these bulbs, somehow became a hotly desired commodity. And people started buying up tulips and bidding up the price. And it became a bubble, as we call it. And tulip mania, uh, at the peak of tulip mania, the price of tulips were going up as much as 1,100% a month. And at the peak of it, one uh, exotic bulb, just one flower bulb, could sell for as much as 10 times the annual salary of a middle-class man. So let's say the U.S. median income is 50000 today. Back then, one tulip bulb could be selling for half a million dollars. Not only that, they began to create derivative financial instruments to trade, to speculate on the price of tulips. So they would be, have options contracts, they would have future contracts, and they would have, to give you an example of what that might mean, there would be a contract written up with a farmer. You have an acre of tulips. I'm going to buy the contract, right? We're going to sign a contract for $1,000, say. They take that contract, which is a derivative. You're not even buying the tulips. It's simply the promise, the promissory note that you can one day buy that plot of tulips. Go to the market and say, who's the highest bidder? Oh, I'll pay 2000 for that. I'll pay 4000 for that. I'll pay 10000 for that. And people would buy it and flip it around and sell it for 10 times more the next day or whatever. And it became a bubble because people were making speculative decisions on the price of tulips continuing to go up. So as all bubbles go, eventually it popped. And the entire Dutch economy came grinding to a standstill. And you might be thinking, ha, 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 I would never do that with tulips. Hmm. hmm. You remember 2008? There was a bubble. And the bubble was in housing. Hmm. You remember in uh, the late 90s? There was a, there was a bubble in dot-com companies. And, uh, you know, I hear about something these days that have been going up thousands of dollars in, re in, re in returns, and people are creating derivative financial instruments about them and betting on their prices and speculating. It sounds a little bit like Bitcoin, doesn't it? Well, tulip mania and Bitcoin have a lot in common, I must say. So let's continue here, and let's, we, need to, we need to drill down a little bit. So 
we don't want to speculate. We don't want to become a tulip maniac. We don't want to fall into that trap of just uh, feeding into the bubble. We don't want to speculate. We want to be an investor. So what's the difference between speculating and investing? So here are a few things to help us guide our thinking about what is speculating and what is investing. Speculating is hoping for quick riches. Getting rich quick is the goal. Whereas investing is patient and steady for the long term. The motive in speculating is to get rich, whereas in investing, the motive is to meet needs. Speculating is based on arbitrary price movement, whereas investing is based on the expected productivity of an asset. That is a critical, critical point. Warren Buffett once said, and it took me a while to understand really what he was saying. Warren Buffett once said, when he is buying a business, a stock in a company or a business, he buys the business with the anticipation that the stock market is going to shut down tomorrow and not open for five to 10 years. Because he doesn't care about the price of the stock. If you care about the price of the asset and whether it's going up or down, chances are you're speculating. So what does, what does Warren Buffett look at? He looks at the business. Is it creating value for their customers? Does it have positive cash flow? Does it pay a good dividend? Is it, does it have an economic advantage that is sustainable over the long term? Does it have good management? This is what he's looking at, the expected productivity of an asset. So using the example of the tulips, anything wrong with tulips? No. Is tulip farming and having a tulip flower shop, is that a legitimate business? Yes. So the problem was not in the tulips, right? The problem were in the speculators. So a speculator looks at the tulip and says, hmm, I wonder how much I can sell this for. Like, what, like who's the biggest sucker, right, who's going to buy this at a higher price than I paid? Whereas a tulip investor would look at, look at it this way. They would look at the farm and say, if I were to become a shareholder in this business, and I gave it some capital, if I gave it some extra you know, management expertise, how can we improve the quality of the product, raise the prices, sell to a wider market? Maybe we can improve our productivity by being nicer to our employees, giving them a better work environment. And as a result, the business grows in an organic way because it provides more value. The business is actually generating something. Whereas what was happening back then in Tulip Mania, they didn't even care about the tulips. It could have, you could have exchanged it for anything. It might not have been tulips. Maybe it would have been daisies. Maybe it would have been a Tickle Me Elmo. I don't know. Right? It's the same concept when we think about every bubble. So the question that is being asked when we're speculating is, what is the price? What's the price that I can buy it for and what's the price I can sell it for? That's what the speculator cares about. An investor says, what's the value? What benefit is this generating for humanity, for the marketplace? What is the value? And so when we think about Bitcoin, ask yourself these questions. Are you trying to get rich quick? 99% of people investing in cryptocurrencies, that is entirely the reason. Motive is to get rich. Is it based on arbitrary price movement? Well, yeah. What is the price? Well, that's the only question that's being asked frequently. Now, you might be thinking, oh, you're being so hard on Bitcoin, you know, you don't really understand it. So let me back up a little bit and let me give it a little bit of a fair shake, all right? So Bitcoin right now is what's in the news. But Bitcoin is not the only cryptocurrency that's in existence. There are like thousands of them. And Bitcoin and all these cryptocurrencies are built on what's called the blockchain technology. And I will say from my research that blockchain technology is is legit, okay? It is a real thing. Blockchain is here to stay, and it is not, it's not fake. But the price action of the cryptocurrencies, and Bitcoin in particular, I believe has to be separated in our minds from the underlying technology, all right? So let me give you an analogy of how I see this. Back in the 1990s, late 90s and early 2000s, there was the dot-com bubble. Some of you might remember that. Everyone, anyone heard of um, Pets.com? Pets.com, does it still exist? It had $300 million valuation. Within two weeks, it was zero during the dot-com bubble burst. But also during the dot-com bubble, there was a company called uh, Amazon.com. Anyone heard of Amazon? 
Is it still around? So what am I saying? The dot-com bubble was built on speculators speculating on companies that had dot-com in their name. It does not say, it has nothing to do with the underlying technology of the internet. The internet is still valuable, incredibly valuable. But because of the speculation in the dot-com businesses, it became an unsustainable bubble, even though within the bubble, there are companies that are legitimate that are still with us today. So the best analogy I can give with the cryptocurrency craze right now is that it looks like a bubble, it smells like a bubble, it moves like a bubble, people are frothing at the mouth like a bubble. So it's probably a bubble, but within the bubble, we have to understand that the Bitcoin or the blockchain technology underneath very well could be someday something very significant. Is that fair? You, I mean, some of you might be like, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Let's go on. But for those of you who are here for the whole Bitcoin bit, I feel like I have to give you that because I don't want you to walk out and say that guy is ignorant. He doesn't know anything. I don't know much, but I do know this. And that is that blockchain is different than speculation in Bitcoin. We got to keep those things separate. Someday, down the road, it might be very soon down the road, we very well might be in a day and age where blockchain is as pervasive as the internet. It is very possible. But does that mean that now's the time to just jump on the hype train and just speculate away and, and, and jump in the bubble of Bitcoin? I don't believe so. Okay, so maybe someday there might be a safe way of investing in the underlying technology of cryptocurrencies. Maybe. But as of right now, I don't know of an easy, safe, regulated, you know, cost-effective way to do that. So I'll give you that. Cryptocurrency is not all bad. Don't call me a, a blockchain hater. I actually love the blockchain. I'm just not a big fan of speculating in Bitcoin at the moment. Is that clear? Amen? All right. One person said amen. So I'll just, I'll just move on. You guys are getting bored. All right. Number seven, value your time. All right. So investing we also takes our time. And your money should be working for you, not you working some more for your money. We understand that we have better things to do with our time. We're here at GYC. We're going to be talking about reaching souls and winning souls for Jesus. We need to have our money uh, enabling us to spend more of our time doing that, not us being tied up more to work for our money. It shouldn't be another job, and our time is also talent and proof for the Lord. So day trading, it could be trading currencies, cryptos, or it could be uh, day trading stocks. I don't really consider that investing. That's more of a side job or side hobby. And I'll also mention this, now that I've offended some people, maybe I'll just offend the rest of you. Multi-level marketing is not an investment. It is a side business. Okay? It is a side job. So don't get this notion that, oh, multi-level marketing, I'm going to earn a bunch of money. Well, you, you might but you have to work at it. So I don't consider it an investment. It's like a side job, a side hobby or whatnot. We have to remember our time is also a talent to improve for the Lord. <coughs> so value your time in your investments. Money is a very excellent servant, but a terrible master, P.T. Barnum once said. Number eight, we need to have an exit strategy, and that means we need to consider the liquidity of our investments. Why do I say that? Councils on Stewardship, page 59, paragraph 4. Houses and lands will be of no use to the saints in the time of trouble, for they will then have to flee before infuriated mobs, and at that time their possessions cannot be disposed of to advance the cause of present truth. I was shown that it is the will of God that the saints should cut loose from every encumbrance before the time of trouble comes and make a covenant with God through sacrifice. If they have the property on the altar and, in, and earnestly inquire of God for duty, he will teach them when to dispose of these things. Then they will be free in the time of trouble and have no clogs to weigh them down. Continuing. Page 60, paragraph 2. I also saw that God had not required all of his people to dispose of their property at the same time, but if they desired to be taught, he would teach them in a time of need when to sell and how much to sell. Some have been required to dispose of their property in times past to sustain the Advent cause, while others have been permitted to keep theirs until a time of need. Then, as the cause needs it, their duty is to sell. That long passage, let's summarize what we just read. It is the will of God that the saints should cut loose from every <coughs> excuse me, encumbrance before the time of trouble, meaning all of our property, all of our investments, all of our assets. There will come a time when God says, sell everything, liquidate. 
God does not require all of his people to dispose of their property at the same time. A lot of times I've talked with people and they're like, I wish there was like this sign in the sky. Like, is it the Sunday law or is it some other thing that once this happens, everyone sell everything. Well, guess what? That's not how it works. Because just think logically, think logically with me. If it was that way and all of God's people sell everything all at the same time, guess what? There's no one left to administer the funds for God's work because everyone just sold everything. So the fact of the matter is, God is not saying, let's hold on to your assets until the last possible moment. Mm -mm, That's not how it works. God is going to tell people one by one, now is the time for you to sell. Now is the time for you to sell. Now is the time for you to sell. So there's a constant stream, constant stream going into the work of God until the work is finished. So some people, just like we just read, some people God said, you should sell everything right now, long ago. Maybe some people today. Some people might be tomorrow. Some people might be later. I don't know, okay? But when, when do we sell? Number three, inquire of God for duty and he will teach you when to sell. It's not for me to tell you. I don't know. God will tell you. It's an individual decision. We have to be in tune with the Lord. And so that means, in the meantime, we need to consider the liquidity of our investments. So whatever we're investing in, we need to understand, how do I liquidate when the time comes? We need to have a path. And also, if we have a big portfolio, we've got a lot of different things, we need to balance it out. So we can start selling chunks of it instead of having everything locked up for a long period of time. I've been talking about cryptos. Let's finish up with Bitcoin a little bit. A lot of people assume Bitcoin is just liquid because it's like digital cash. Well, guess what? When a lot of people are trying to sell out of the market, all the exchanges shut down and your money is stuck there. And it's stuck there until your, you know, the Bitcoin goes down 50% in value. So yes, in a sense... Theoretically speaking, the technology should enable Bitcoin to be very liquid. That's the ideal. But in reality, the way it is right now, it's not. And sometimes your Bitcoin transaction may take a week or more to go through. Of course, this doesn't necessarily apply to some of the other cryptos, but Bitcoin in particular. So we do have to understand that even the liquidity of Bitcoin is a factor. But all of our investments, if it's land, if it's property, if it's business, whatever it might be, will it take three months? Will it take six months to unravel these things if the Lord moves upon you to sell? You have to keep those things in mind and understand what your exit strategy is. Okay, point number nine, morality. So principle number nine, we have to think about the investment, the morality of our investments. So 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So there are two pervasive perspectives on ethical investing. The first one is that we should avoid investments that are directly involved with unethical products and industries. I think we agree with that. But the second one takes it a step further. We should avoid investments in anything, companies, mutual funds, etc., that contain even an indirect or incidental interest in any product or industry that would deemed unethical. So this is Number two, I think we would say would be ideal, but the question is, is it realistic? Is it a tenable position to adopt, to have financial interactions with businesses that not only in and of themselves are morally pure, but they're indirect, like they're downline, right? Like if I go to a bank and I'm doing business with a bank, is, can I be sure that that bank is not loaning money out to someone who's doing something that I don't agree with? Is that possible? Another, another example is, Okay, let's say I invest in uh, Costco, right? Costco, family-friendly, good business. Well, guess what? Costco is the number one alcohol retailer in the world. So does that mean Costco is an inappropriate investment for me as a Christian? These are questions to ask. So my, my, my dilemma here is, yes, number two, having all indirect incidental affiliations be morally pure. I think that's ideal, but I don't believe that it is, number one, tenable, and number two, I don't believe it is required by Scripture. So let me show you some Bible verses here. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10. Paul writing, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Pause. Not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. So you see what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, do not associate with sexually immoral people. What's assumed here is, in the church, don't countenance open sin in the church, but in the world, in the marketplace, because he's talking about the greedy and the swindlers, that's talking about economic activity. 
in the marketplace, when you're interacting with, with the heathen, with the Gentiles, this is an untenable standard for us to have because the only way for us to have that level of moral purity is we have to leave this world. Paul says it himself. Matthew 5, verse 43 and 45. For he, God, makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So if we are taking the moral position of saying we are morally culpable for the sin that's done, not just in our direct interactions, but in their secondary and tertiary indirect affiliations, then what we're saying is God ultimately is morally culpable for every sin, evil act that happens under the sun. Why? Because God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. So that's a moral standard if we are making that the rule that even God himself cannot be held to. So this is what I mean when I say in our financial interactions, whether as a customer, whether as a partner, whether as a business person, whether as an employee or as an investor, it is not realistic to expect 100% of our secondary and tertiary affiliations through our uh, business interactions to be morally pure. That's my position based on some of these verses. Now, if you want more information, I actually wrote a three-part article series on my blog on the subject, specifically dealing with mutual funds, because that's where the question came up. Is it okay to invest in mutual funds? Because I'm not sure what they're all in there, um, and this is part of what I discuss in there. So the, the moral application is just this. Number one, we need to recognize what Scripture does and doesn't require of us, and don't create a moral rule beyond what God requires. Okay, we need to be careful not to do that. But number two, we need to make sure all of our direct interactions are morally pure and that we are following God's clearly revealed will. So in our investments, I do not recommend people investing in Budweiser right, or Marlboro or whatever you know, other uh, companies that are dealing with immoral stuff. But if I'm doing business with a bank and I find out that Marlboro happens to have also a bank account with that bank and they're getting paid interest and I'm affiliated with this bank, I'm not going to sweat that. You understand what I'm saying? Even though, yeah, if you choose to move your business somewhere else, I'm not going to say don't do that. But in that particular situation, I'm not going to lose sleep over it. And just like, you know, going to shop at Costco or whatever. I, yeah, they sell alcohol at Costco. They sell alcohol in a lot of places. But that doesn't keep me from doing business with that retailer, okay? based on what I'm seeing here. So number three, do our best with the remaining indirect interactions, recognizing that we live in an imperfect and sinful world and that we should not neglect major duties while quibbling over minor matters, to not strain at a gnat and then swallow a camel. Just a couple, uh, last year actually, I was at a convention and I was sharing some of this and one person says, oh, you invest in mutual funds, you bad person. Don't you know stocks are evil and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. He just went on and on and on in public in front of everyone. And I'm like, okay, that's nice. And then afterwards, he came up and he's like, oh, have you heard about cryptocurrencies? <laughs> he said, if I just put in this much, you know, it's going to go boom and I'll be retarded and I'll be set. And I'm like, wait a minute. Have you heard of the Silk Road? Have you heard about Bitcoin being used for illegal activities? If you have a problem with these businesses, why do you not have a problem with this over here? I'm not necessarily this person is, you know, a bad person, but there's an inconsistency in his thinking is all I'm saying. So when we're thinking through these things, we have to have a moral framework in which we're not going to be so guilt-ridden that we're just losing sleep because, oh no, my money is in a bank that has, you know, business with other people that I don't agree with. Moral paralysis can set in. So do the best we can, make the best choices with options available to us, but understand what God does and does not require. So you can read more about this on the blog. Uh, in my article, we need to keep going. Deuteronomy 15, 66, Thou shalt lend unto many nations. And just as an incidental note, by definition, all other nations are heathen nations. So Israel could have, God could have kept all the investment dollars within Israel. But God's ideal was, no, I want you to interact with the other nations. Lend to them, which is a form of investment, by the way. So it seems as though God does not necessarily say don't have any financial uh, involvement with non-Christians. Number 10, start now. Principle number 10 for investing, start now. Thrifty Tiffany and Spendy Sally. They are both the same age. Tiffany uh, decides to save $2,000 a year from age 20 to 30 for 10 years, invested at 8% rate of return. So she invests $20,000 over 10 years of her own money. 
Sally, on the other hand, she says, I'm young. I'm going to wait till I'm married, settled, have kids, whatever. At age 30, I'll start investing then and I'll catch up. $2,000 a year from age 30 to 65. She invests also 8% rate of return, <coughs> and she invests $70,000 of her own money over 35 years. So you see the contrast there. They start at the same age. They start investing at different times. One invests more money over a longer period of time than the other. At age 65, when they retire, who has more money? I sort of give it away in the, name, the way I named them, didn't I? But let's take a look at the numbers. At age 65, Tiffany will have half a million dollars, whereas Sally will only have 380000 That's a $120,000 difference. It's no chump change. But Tiffany saved a lot less and for a shorter period of time than Sally. How, does, how is this possible? The only difference was she started earlier. It's because of compound interest, and here's the graph. She had a 10-year running head start. And compound interest, you remember in high school algebra, is interest that earns interest on itself, right? It keeps growing, compounding. And so the growth chart here is not a straight line. It becomes an exponential curve. And so Tiffany has a running start. And as the compounding interest picks up, even though Sally is adding at a rate of $2,000 more a year, she never catches up to Tiffany. So the principle is just this. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. Don't wait. Don't wait until you have a bunch, big pile of money. It's better to invest a little bit earlier rather than investing a lot later. And we read a quote earlier today, Ellen White recommending her uh, young nephew, even in your meager uh, or limited wages, you can save a little bit and invest it in something that gains in value. Ellen White herself said that. So how do we determine investments? We come up with an investment scorecard. And we have nine points total, and this is what we use to evaluate. Do I understand this investment? The four things we need to understand. Can it beat inflation? If it doesn't beat inflation, it's not really a legit form of inflation uh, of investment because we're burying the talent. Is it a low-cost investment? Is it diversified? Is it non-speculative? How much time does it take to manage? Is it an acceptable amount of risk? How liquid is it? How easy it is to liquidate? And can I have a clear moral picture of all of its direct and indirect involvement? So, since I've been talking about Bitcoin, let's close on that. My Bitcoin scorecard, this is what it looks like. Do I understand? Now, I have to be honest. I feel like I have a fairly reasonable grasp on Bitcoin, but I do not feel like I understand it well enough to really say confidently that I understand. And I'm, I'm not the smartest person in the world, but I don't think I'm the dullest pencil in the box either. Uh, and I'm just being honest with you, it's not that simple, okay? Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general. Can it beat inflation? Yes. I believe it's shown that it can. Can it crash and lose a lot of money below inflation? Yeah, it can do that too. Is it low cost? I don't believe it is right now. Maybe some cryptocurrencies are. Is it diversified? Well, not really. Is it non-speculative? This is the big one. It is, a, it is like the definition of speculation currently, okay? Bitcoin itself not necessarily the blockchain technology necessarily. How much time does it take to manage? It actually takes a lot of time. You have to exchange back and forth with different financial exchanges, and it takes forever to get your fiat currency in and out. Acceptable amount of risk? Well, not for me. I'm not into skydiving, and Bitcoin is the equivalent of financial skydiving right now. Liquidity? Well, I mentioned it earlier. It's actually not super liquid. It's hard to get your money out in a, in a big rush. And then is there complete moral clarity? Well, Bitcoin, that's one of the big things. It's been used for a lot of money laundering type things, criminal activities. It's not, it's not clear. So for me, it scores one out of nine. Okay, so I, to me, Bitcoin is not that great of an invest, investment. Now, I'm going to end on this point. Some of you are going to take this, and you're not going to listen to anything that I say, and you're going to invest in it anyway. So to you, this is what I'm going to say. Be exceedingly careful not to put more than 1% or 2% of your investment portfolio into cryptocurrencies. If it does explode as you think it is, which is how most people think about it, 1% or 2% should be more than enough to make you a millionaire, right? But if it's 1% or 2%, at least you're not going to lose your shirt if it crashes and burns, all right? So this is, this is sort of my, 
my backup. Like, if you're not going to listen to me anyway, at least hear me out on this point. Don't mortgage your house to go into cryptos. Don't sell a kidney to buy Bitcoin. All right? Don't sell your children. Be, uh, be exceedingly careful. So this is my Bitcoin scorecard. Here are the financial uh, investment tips. And I have gone way over time. I am so sorry. I didn't know what time it was. But let's close. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for being with us this hour as we discuss these things. I hope it has been practical. May you work on the hearts of uh, the young people here as they make careful decisions about their money. And may they do it all for your name's glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.